you have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Super Bowl Monday morning. Hopefully your team won, but let's get into today's show. Look, I'm pretty excited to have Mark Nevins as our guest, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, this particular book in the episode, I'm going to give you some snippets of it, is about how organizations outrun the leader's skills. And it's because the leader hits a wall, and it leads to ineffectiveness, and then this escalates into a crisis, and then you have to ask that question, which is the title of his book, What Happens Now? The subtitle is Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Business Outrun You outruns you, excuse me. And this requires you to do things you've never done before, which are inspire people, nurture relationships, energize teams, groom successors, influence stakeholders. And the bottom line is you have to turn these game-stopping stalls into personal growth and organizational success. So if we go back to why we started this show or why I decided this show, it was targeted for people who are interested in servant leadership. And if I'm looking right now at my LinkedIn uh, page, for those of you who are in the group, and I've got the picture, of, uh, there's a V of these various bullets. And at the very bottom is self-awareness. And off the left side, I've got three bullets that are healing, which I call humility, empathy, and listening. And on the right side, persuasion or influence, stewardship, which I call responsibility and developing others. And finally, this is all about building com community. And this is why I'm so excited to share with you Mark's book this morning. And I just want to first uh, give you a introduction to who Mark is. You know, there's a lot of things you can read about him online, but he's a contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He's got, he went to the College of Holy Cross and graduated with honors, and then he went on to Harvard University to get his PhD. He's traveled, taught, and worked in more than 60 countries around the world. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. So, look, uh, tell us something about yourself, please. That's not in your bio. Well, you touched on it a little bit. Um, I think probably the most interesting thing about me is the fact that I wound up doing what I do for a living. My undergraduate degree is in molecular biology. My PhD, everyone assumes, is either in business or in psychology. It's actually in, liter um, in literature. And uh, so when I was younger, I thought I would either go off to medical school or do, do medical research. Um, and then eventually I thought, well, maybe I'll actually go off and be a college professor. And I, through a variety of, of odd turns, found myself working for the global management firm, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, and kind of fell in love with consulting. So, and I mentioned that because in the work that I do with my clients, uh, you know, I'm not trying to teach them leadership through Shakespeare, although that can be an interesting topic. But I do think the way that I'm informed uh, in the way that I've been educated and grown up probably helps me bring a different perspective to helping leaders think about their challenges than maybe people who've gone through traditional business programs or come out of IO psychology. That's fantastic. And I'm going to tell you why I feel that way. First of all, I studied computer science and I had that technical background and it was the army who uh, trained and groomed me, if, if you will, in the personal slash interpersonal skills. And you talk about this in your book and I use something called the skills curve, essentially where we go from our technical skills to our 
our people skills. And that's what gives us the ability to succeed at the higher and higher levels of leadership or in, a, in the management structure cycle. Now, uh, Mark talked about molecular biology. I didn't know that, but I did know that he had studied literature. And I have to tell you, one of the things that uh, when I work with project managers, it's funny, there are a lot of project managers who think that they should get the job based on their technical skills, but then they find there are articles out there that talk about how liberal arts majors actually win the day because they are better at communicating. So, before I get into your book, do you ha want to talk about that at all? Because I think it's, I think it's something missed on people who come from the background that I have, that come from the background that you have, which is the STEM, the science and the technology type yeah. of background. Um, any other thoughts on that before we get into your book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's a great point. So if you've been paying attention to the, to the business press of late, you'll notice that a number of very visible senior leaders, including the CEO of Goldman Sachs, have recently when asked the question, what are you looking for in your next generation of hires, you know, i.e., what should schools be teaching, the response has been a very, very strong, we need people with interpersonal skills, people who can handle difficult situations. Uh, the world is getting more complex, more sophisticated. Um, we're dealing with a great diversity of, of stakeholders who all have very, very different perspectives in your ability, and I always say this myself, your ability to foster dialogue as a leader is absolutely critical. So, um, you know, I, when people ask me, what do you think is the most important leadership competency, I will often respond, it's the ability to foster dialogue. Because if I can't create dialogue amongst my various stakeholders, um, things aren't going to turn out well. And, you know, I'll, I'll pause there, but I think if you take a look around you, you know, anywhere from American business, uh, global business, uh, international relations, certainly the political discourse in this country right now, and I won't politicize this, but, you know, the real problem, I think, is we have, as almost as a, as a society, forgotten how to have productive dialogue. Mm, yeah, part of it is when we're buried into our electronic devices and we don't, uh, we communicate, we communicate to the people sitting next to us via our texts, um, that, uh, that changes the dynamic. But uh, let me not get off on that tangent. Um, let's, uh, let's get, you know, Mark just talked about some things, you know, the ability to foster dialogue. And I wanted to share with, you know, look. Mark comes from the technical background, so do I. If you have a technical background and you're listening, it does not mean that you can't um, develop these school these skills, excuse me, and this is the great part about Mark's book, is his book is all about, it's like a roadmap for you to figure out how do you get these these uh, skills that the CEOs want that are going to give you that ability to foster dialogue. Now, in the foreword of his book, um, it's written by uh, a gentleman named Norman R. Augustine, and he writes, individuals who cannot grow their own personal qualities accordingly are at risk. And that resonated with me because I felt that way during my career. And he also goes on to say, leadership demands adapting to changing circumstances, always while maintaining one's core values. And I love that as well because core values are extremely important. So before I continue, Mark, anything you want to comment on, the, on your forward? Yeah, well, first of all, what I've told people, I mean, we're tremendously blessed to have Norm Augustine write our forward. Uh, he's a close personal friend uh, and advisor and and mentor to my co-author, John Hillen, who was a distinguished uh, military and technical background. Um, and I always tell people, look, if you don't read the book, just read the, read the foreword, because everything you need to know is in there. And Norm says a number of things, and one of the things, that, you know, I'll pick up a couple of the prior themes here. Um, he observes, uh, and I've heard the story, not, not just the version of the foreword, he observes that um, he, so he was the CEO of Lockheed Martin, 
and he was trained as a rocket scientist, truly. I mean, a very, very heavy STEM education. And mm -hmm. he says that in my you know, 15 or 20 years where I was really focused on my CEO role, I didn't talk to any engineers. I'm an engineer. Now, being an engineer is a great qualification for becoming the CEO of Lockheed Martin. But what I found that as the CEO, I was spending most of my time talking with regulators, customers, bankers, government officials, international players. Um, and as a result, it required me to ensure that I developed or brought out the latent skills, again, around fostering dialogue, <clears throat> having difficult conversations, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand how they're seeing the world, influencing skills. My wife, who was one of my great uh, coaches, told me 20 years ago, she said, Mark, you can be right and not have a good outcome. And of course, my response was, honey, how's that possible? But you see the point, right? Being right is useful uh, and probably necessary, but not always sufficient to getting to uh, a good outcome for everybody. Great points. Now, look, um, for those of you who are out there who, who are perhaps line managers and your goal is to move up the management ladder, if you will, uh, we're talking about this ability to communicate with different people. And one of the thoughts that was going through Mark, my mind as Mark was talking um, was how when, when I was in the Army aviation, I was very, very focused on aviation and the specifics and the technical details. And as I moved up the, uh, the corporate ladder, if you will, I had to get familiar with the players on the left and right of me and all around me. And, and that's, again, fostering these skills to be able to communicate. And, and hopefully we're going to get as far in his book today as uh, where he gets to talking about stakeholders. So moving along, um, in his preface, he says, too few leaders devise pragmatic plans to grow themselves. They pay attention to the institution, but not their own needs. In my mind, I'm thinking of you're on an airplane, and then that oxygen mask pops down, and the first thing you need yep. to do is you need to put it on your own face first, otherwise you can't help anybody else out. So as a leader, what I'm thinking is, and I certainly, of course, going to ask Mark his, what his thoughts were here, is that you got to be able to develop and build who you are in order to be able to take care of others. And go ahead, Mark, what, what, are your, what were your trying to accomplish in that preface and what are your thoughts on that particular statement? Well, I absolutely love the, uh, the oxygen mask metaphor. I use it often. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, it's a really, really important thing to ask yourself, am I continuing to improve myself? Am I continuing to sharpen my own saw? The, the, I have worked very, very hard to get where I am today, but you know, the world being what it is, the minute I get here, everything changes, right? So the world gets more complicated, disruptive technologies appear, Customers want different things. Um, I'm now old enough to recognize that there are actually different generations in the workplace. And I think we could talk about the millennials thing. I think it's a bit overblown. I'm not sure that millennials are much different than I was when I was 20. They just have, you know, smartphones, which I didn't have. Um, but the ability to, to sort of really understand all of these things depends on you not just thinking about the things differently, but thinking about yourself differently. It demands that you not look merely to change the things around you, but to change yourself. And if you can't continue to grow and evolve, then you will wake up sooner or later and find that you know, people aren't listening to you anymore, you don't have the same credibility, you're unable to see things you need to see, uh, which will cause you to make mistakes, lose confidence, um, and you know, ultimately fail. 
Well, look, that's great. Look, I agree with you on the comment, the comment about the millennials being overblown. In my opinion, they're no different than you and I were. Everybody is motivated, has different motivators, which you get into in your book as well. And you just need to identify what makes people tick. So they're no different than you and I were. Um, so let's not go into that but uh, any further. But let me ask you this question. You know, when you, um, when you ask, you as the leader, ask yourself this question, am I continuing to improve myself? And you, you make the effort to actually do that. I would like to hear your comments to the to our listeners on when you do that. What do you believe that signals to your team? Because I think this is very important. Well, you know, I would I would respond with um, it's very and this is a principle of of adult education globally speaking. It's very difficult, I think, to tell people, particularly mature, relatively successful people, to tell them what you're doing is wrong. So what you'll see when you read my book, starting with the title, What Happens Now? It's a question. What I find most of my work these days is working with CEOs and other very senior leaders of big companies and you know, private equity held high growth companies. And what I find is that the best value you can bring is to ask them good and tough questions. And I don't mean typical sort of psychology questions like, well, how do you feel about that? I mean questions like, so you aspire to become the COO of this company. Why? Uh, what will you focus on that will, over the next three years, truly allow this company to excel? Uh, three years from now, how specifically will this company look different? What is required from you as a leader to move the company forward? Uh, not only what do your people want from you, but also what do your people need from you? Because sometimes what people want is not actually what they need, and you have to be, walk a very, very fine tightrope on getting that one right. And, of course, the, the most compelling question, and this is one I think you have to earn the right to ask because it's a very, very difficult question, is very simply, why would anybody want to follow you? That's a very you know, direct uh, lead into your point about servant leadership, but am I following you because you're really smart, because you know this business really well, and eh, maybe am I following you because I have to? That's not going to be a good long-term strategy. Really asking yourself as a leader, what is it that I am doing and what is it that I am that will generate followership and help me help these people achieve something that they might not have been able to achieve if I weren't part of that mix. You know, uh, the question, why would anyone follow you? When I give my keynote sets, uh, one of the questions I share with the audience and I ask them, you know, why should others follow you? And, you know, part of my answer is, is in, and part of the reason I asked you that last question is, is it's the example you set. And so if you're a learning type of individual and you're continually seeking self-improvement. Um, for me, you're sending the signal to your um, team that you're trying to, you've, you've got room to grow and it gives them permission to do the same and it just creates the type of learning environment you want to have. Now look, in the very beginning of Mark's book, he, he set me back on my haunches because when somebody writes and makes a bold claim like, hey, this book is gonna be different than the, any of the other leadership books you've read, I, uh, I get a little defensive, I'll be honest, and had, but as I continued to read the book, um, I had to agree with Mark. It is different. It's a great, great book, and so I'm, we're not even into the, the intro, so let's get into the intro. So Mark talks about the difference between complexity and sophistication, and I'll read to you a quote, and then he can take it from there. 
Mastering sophistication rather than merely complexity demands self-development and over time, radical change of yourself. Go ahead, Mark. Well, yeah. So I think, um, I think this concept that we came up with, my co-author John Hillen and I, of uh, complexity versus sophistication is really critical to, to sort of reset the way we'd like our readers and our clients to think about how they develop themselves as leaders. And, you know, my friends at Harvard Business School would never have published this book because both John and I are practitioners. John's run multiple companies as a CEO. Uh, I've worked with many, many CEOs and other senior leaders and, and companies at every level. Um, and if, if Harvard or another of the business school presses were to publish this book, when we say, it's the difference between complexity and sophistication. They would say, okay, so show us your research. And I can't. Um, I can only show you 20 plus years of working with executives and, and managers at every level where what we came to realize, and we called it complexity versus sophistication, is that at some point, all of the things you were doing that were helping you get results stop working. And we call this stalling. Like, a, like an airplane stalls, or like a car stalls. Everything is great. You're firing in all cylinders. And all of a sudden, you just start to sputter and you stall. And you stall for any number of ways. We came up with seven of them. We'll talk about that a little later. But you stall, we believe, because you mistake, as a leader, problems of sophistication for problems of complexity. Now, I can explain that briefly. And I will right now, just very briefly. So problems of complexity are basically more of the same, and they're usually quantitative problems. So we are going to enter a new market. We are growing by, you know, two or three times a year. We're introducing new products. Uh, the, the laws and regulations have changed. Now we have to work with lawyers and regulators in a different way. We're going public, right? These are all more, typically more technical or functional problems, and they require me to do more of what I know how to do. I have to hire a new kind of consulting firm. We have to upgrade our CFO and our general counsel, etc. Where people tend to stall is when they mistake a sophistication problem for a uh, complexity problem, and they try to use complexity solutions. So, for example, our first chapter the first meaningful chapter after we get through the setup of complexity versus sophistication is the first stall. And the first stall is stalling because you're not telling a compelling story. Uh, I obviously have a literature background, so narrative is very important to me. My co-author, John, who has run several companies, says, look, what you have to understand is CEO actually stands for Chief Explaining Officer. You have to tell a story and explain it again and again to get everybody to come along. And what will happen is, for example, the leader, whether it's a leader of a business unit, of the enterprise, when talking to investors, talking to customers, talking to employees, is not telling a compelling story. That is a sophistication challenge. How do I step out of the day-to-day -day and realize it's not about EBITDA, it's about why would anybody want to buy this product? Why would anybody want to work here? Why would anybody want to follow me? Right? So you can see how what it, what it demands is it demands a different set of skills. It demands a different mindset. And what it most of all demands is that I, as a leader, am focusing my time and my energy in a very different place. I'm talking about 
why we're here, why we're going to do something great, why you want to be a part of this. And that's a very different set of motions than, again, sitting down and restructuring the company, refinancing, you know, hiring a different advertising firm to come in and, you know, do focus groups and try to push the product in a different way. Well, Mark, let me uh, share with you, since you're, this is your first time here, I'd like to recap a little bit of what the uh, guest says, and, um, but, so I'm going to get ready to do that. Uh, but first, if you're listening and you have a question for Mark, our call-in number is 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. You know, I love when you're talking about where if you, you first of all, Mark has a PhD from Harvard, and he, when he, so when he says that um, when, when he tries tries to, to explain his, this complexity versus sophistication model to the those folks in academia um, they say show us your research well Mark's pushback if you will is exactly how I would do it except he does it with from a position of authority because he has his own PhD at any rate so you know at the end of his uh, introduction he talks about the wisdom of it all and you know you have to make these subtle changes that will make a difference along your journey. So it's the constant, you know, chipping away. And, you know, as you learn, you're constantly uh, putting arrows in your quiver and getting more and more skills and not just the technical skills, but now we're talking about those interpersonal skills. And he says, as you move up, you must reshape your sense of who you are and what you project to others. So as I'm reading the book, I am, I'm like any person, I'm, I'm comparing it to my career and the different pains that I uh, had experienced. And he calls these things, um, there's a book out there. I believe the author is Jan Katzenbach, but uh, he, uh, the book is called Moments of Truth, and Mark references that. And he talks about inflection points, and I refer to those as fork in the road decisions. Um, and he says, in, in uh, let me just capture this, and I'll let Mark continue again. He says, when you need to deploy an entirely different set of skills and behaviors. So think about it. You come into a situation where now it's going to be an interpersonal decision that you've got to make, and then you've got all this pain and doubt. And he calls these inflection points, and uh, he also refers to them as the dark side of the moon problem, which I liked as well. So, Mark, if you would pick it up from there and talk about um, inflection points. Good. So let's, uh, let me put a quick pin in inflection points. I did want to say one more thing about the research. So, um, look, I, obviously I've got a PhD. I highly value research. I think the work done by my friends and colleagues and associates at business schools is very, very important work. Um, I believe somebody could sit down and generate the data to make the case for complexity versus sophistication. Mm. But the flip side of that is it's not the kind of book we wanted to write. Uh, right. Probably not the kind of book most of our clients would want to read, frankly. But every time I've explained this question of complexity versus sophistication to a seasoned executive, to a new manager, you know, frankly, to a teenager, I always get, oh, yeah, that's obvious. That's, that's obvious. We've all seen that before. We've all seen mistaking technical problems for, we can call them interpersonal problems. We can call them maybe systemic problems because, you know, they involve people, and people are a lot less predictable than, um, than intangible things. But let's come back to your point about um, uh, inflection points. So these inflection points. So first and foremost, uh, we all face inflection points. I think the people who are conscious that life is all about inflection points tend to be the more successful people. Uh, people who don't understand that life is about inflection points, that nothing is ever static, uh, as one of the great Greek philosophers said, the only thing 
constant is change. Um, people who fail to understand that will experience moments of success and happiness, but will ultimately be foiled because they don't realize that this is not the end, right? So the Chiefs just won the Super Bowl. That's fantastic. If the Chiefs are going to win the next Super Bowl, they are going to have to do things very, very differently starting next week. We give them a week to celebrate, have their parade, and then the entire organization from the top down needs to be back in there saying, whatever we did last time probably isn't going to work next time because we've got players who are going to want to get paid more. We've got uh, other coaches who are going to look at our tape and start to figure out how to do this. We need to change. So there's your, there's your Super Bowl Monday uh, mm. metaphor. <laughs> so inflection points are things that all of us as leaders will experience. Uh, and they may be internal. They could be as fundamental as, I don't enjoy doing this anymore. And that's a scary one. Uh, in a lot of my coaching conversations, I'm not a life coach, I'm not a career coach, but my clients are humans with lives and they do have careers. And occasionally when I ask somebody, so why do you want to be the CEO of this enterprise after we take it public, they'll say, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I do. Okay, that's an inflection point. Um, you have just been promoted into a major uh, role with a significantly expanded responsibilities, and along the way, you've got a whole new team. That is a huge inflection point. What you do now, what you do in the next couple of months, will essentially determine the trajectory of that team and whether it is successful or not successful. We tend to sort of treat teams as things that form themselves because we've all been around, we all know how to do this, and yet uh, almost all the time that doesn't happen. A lot of my work is with executives who are joining a new organization. They've been hired in. They are the, you know, the rock star from outside. And what happens in their first three to six months will essentially determine their fate at that organization and the results they can, they, they can, um, uh, they can achieve. So what I like to say is let's think about this inflection point and let's figure out what you should be doing or not doing differently to ensure that you get the outcomes you want, which again is not about simply, well, I've run supply chain before. I know how to do this. Let me just get in and start rebuilding the supply chain. Hold on, stop, pull the camera back, and let's look at the broader system and ask some more fundamental questions first. All right. Well, look, we're almost on our first break or our only break already. And I do want to wrap up our first section with a, another quote from his book. He writes, the most effective strategies and capabilities to bring increased sophistication to your work as a leader are not available off the shelf or through hiring others. They depend on your taking initiative largely on your own and leading and doing things in a different way than you've done before. And as Mark said, he's a coach, he's a consultant. And one of the things his book is talking about and tries to communicate to you as the leader is that you need to be the one because of all the change is not to, and I'm skipping ahead, but I kind of want to wrap this up for the break is it, it's up to you to take responsibility. If you don't own the change, if you don't own the, the developing your organization, uh, it's just not going to be the same. And we would call that in the army is taking responsibility and uh, a number of other things, but we're going to pick that up again. And then we're going to finally get into the seven leadership stalls after our break. So with that, um, we're going to go to break and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention, then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when Synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com. That's blackhawkspeaks.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to tom at blackhawkspeaks.com. Now, back to your evolving leadership journey. Well, welcome back. We have been speaking this morning with Mark Nevins, the co-author of What Happens Now, Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Business Outruns You. And let me recap what we've been talking about in the first half of our show. Essentially, he's talking about the the difference between uh, complexity and sophistication, which uh, he discussed, and and the bottom line is is that you as a leader need to be able to, as we're, as the show is, evolve on your leadership journey if you are going to keep pace with the growing organization and the changes that are going on around you. Now, one of the things he says as well is if you want to overcome or avoid a stall, you have to know how aware are you. And again, self-awareness is one of the things I talked about as those principles uh, when it comes to servant leadership. And the question you have to ask between complexity, do I do more or sophistication? Do I do things in a different way? And again, let me read a quote, quote, excuse me. But caught in the crest of past success, they don't take stock of just how much their next success depends on navigating the unseen trial ahead. As it turns out, the new job almost always requires you to drop your old self, all of the skills that made you a good leader in the first place, and reinvent yourself for a new future. And I can't tell you, I definitely experienced that in my career. I thought I had all the skills, and I said, you know what? These aren't going to work here. I'm moving up, and I have to bring on new and different skills. So again, Mark, um, go ahead, pick it up and tell us, expand on that, please. Well, yeah, I think that's a little bit of the old saw that you, con- you have to continue to grow, right? So um, one of the first warning signs, people will ask me, when does your work with an executive not succeed? 
which is a great question. So we're thinking of hiring you. Uh, I'm the lead director, and we want, we've got this COO. We're grooming to be a CEO, or our CEO has been in the seat for a year, and they're not really working out. Can you work with them, and can you help us here? And I'll say, well, let me meet the person. And what am I looking for? So the first thing I'm looking for is somebody who actually believes they can get better, that they need to get better, that what they are and who they are right now is great, absolutely great, but not exactly right or not enough of or not the kind of leader that will succeed given the chapters to come. So, you know, I would look at all of us uh, and ask, you know, look yourself in the mirror. Are you perfect? Well, probably not. Are you willing to understand where you need to grow, you need to evolve, and do you believe as an executive that continuing to grow and evolve is, um, is part of the responsibility you have to yourself and your organization? Every once in a while, I will be asked to coach uh, a, a high-potential senior executive, and I'll sit down with their boss, and the boss will say, look, she's amazing, but she has to work on these three things. And I'll take notes. Yes, that's fantastic. You know, influencing in the boardroom, you know, uh, building stronger peer relations. Got it, got it, got it. This is fantastic. Now, have you told her this? And, and on, on some occasions, the person looks at me and says, well, no, that's why I brought you in. And I'm thinking to myself at that very moment, the person the company is asking me to coach is not the person who really needs the coaching. It's mm -hmm. that senior executive who is thinking everything I'm doing is great because I'm the boss and my direct report has to change. So, you know, I, I think that's where you start out. And obviously anybody who's going to pick up a leadership book, I assume, unless they're being compelled to read it for a, a, a program or a training program in their, in, their, um, in their company, is doing it because they believe they can learn something. And the thing I would tell any reader, any, any seeker, of uh, improving their own leadership effectiveness is to be willing to challenge unchallenged assumptions, be willing to look at yourself and say, in the words of, of Marshall Goldsmith, who wrote a fantastic book on this topic, what got you here won't get you there. Right. Look, so to recap again, one of the things he said that uh, was drilled into our head throughout my career is that um, you don't get promoted on your ability. You get promoted on your potential because, hey, you know, if you're getting promoted on your ability, you can just stay in the position you currently <laughs> occupy and there's no reason for you to move up into bigger and better things. Um, you know, again, I, to recap some of the things he's talking about and he, he's touching on, but we're going to get into deeply – Maybe not in this particular session, but I'm going to bring Mark back because he's got so much great content. But he talks about delegating, and to me, that is that was the key to my freedom. And in order to do that, you have to develop people. I'm skipping ahead, so let me kind of get back to where we are. And um, you know, one of the things he talks about is uh, he's got these different charts in the book, which I think are fantastic. And he also talks about the most effective leaders rely heavily on emotional intelligence. So we're moving away from all of these technical skills that we developed to get us to, you know, to be to our first leadership position, if, if you will. And now we got in, now we get into, it's no longer an issue of what you do. It's, it's about changing how you go about doing what you do. Um, he refers to Tom Peters, uh, 7S model, which I wasn't aware of, and, and I'm simply going to say I'm going to then talk about the eighth one that Mark introduces. It's strategy, structure, systems, staff, skills, style, 
shared values. And if I'm going too fast and you're listening to the live show, go ahead and listen to the podcast and you'll be able to play it at your own speed. And finally, the eighth one they talk about is self. And so this is where this whole book is going. It's about, you know, doing um, what you do. So the question that we're getting into now is first all about purpose. And, you know, I think it's a great lead in because he says, he's talking about in the chapter preceding, he says, you need to crystallize why you come to work every day. You know, why does your work matter to you? Because if you can't display that passion and share it with your team, they're never going to be inspired by you. So as we now get into, you know, his first stall, it's when you fail to provide purpose. Um, he starts the chapter off with a quote from Proverbs and it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, Mark, I know you touched on uh, purpose a little bit, but is there anything else you'd like to share about this particular stall? Yeah, I think this is, um, you know, purpose is becoming part more in, in the work that I'm doing. I'm seeing it more, more part of the mainstream conversation. I think that the rationale for that as often is more defensive than proactive. And it is, we're losing our best people because they're going to work somewhere else. Well, why are they going to work somewhere else? Oh, uh, well, they're unreliable millennials. Well, probably not. Let's try to understand this. They're going to work somewhere else because that other place, whatever their age, is creating for them a greater sense of purpose. Now, that might be merely more career opportunities and better compensation. Maybe it's a more interesting industry in their mind. Maybe the geographical location is, is, uh, is more attractive. But the reality is that people join organizations because, you know, assuming they have some choice in the matter, and we're dealing with people who are a little further up Maslow's pyramid, as, you know, most people who, who graduate from an American uh, university and who, you know, who are getting the kinds of jobs that, um, that we're working with, um, they're looking for something more than the bottom of the pyramid. They're saying, I'm going to commit a chunk of my life to this, and maybe not even consciously. I'm going to be spending many of my working hours here, why are we gathered together as an organization to achieve something? What is the purpose? Uh, why would anybody care if we achieve this? Am I working with people who are like-minded and that we will learn from each other and together we'll do something meaningful? So I'm a huge believer in that. I don't think it's a touchy-feely thing. Um, you know, we can we can go. You know, I mentioned in a in a recent Forbes article, I, I was talking about the business roundtable. Uh, you know, the the bold statement that they made last summer that well, maybe the purpose of a company is not only to deliver shareholder value. And I'm like, wow, did you, you guys finally figured that one out, huh? Kudos hmm. to you. Um, yes, it is, but that's the purpose of any organization. Like the purpose of a human being is to breathe. Okay. I guess so, but that doesn't really lead you to a very fulfilling life, does it? So mm. I think that leaders need to be aware of what will compel people to come work here, to buy our product, to want to invest in us, and that comes down to what's the story I'm telling, and the story has to be rooted in purpose. You mentioned Simon Sinek a while ago. He talks about why, not just what do we do, we make these great products, not just how do we do it, we have the best engineers, but why do we do it? And the why has to be, why is it better for you? 
Right. Now, let me circle back again, please. Um, when you asked the question, um, it's, it's a question I ask in one of, the, one of my keynotes. Why do people join? Why do you join in organizations? And your part of your answer was is because they want to bring around people with who are, share, who are like minded. And I my response to those in, in my audience is that, look, you, you join organizations because you you want to be around people who share the same values as you do. And so and I always tell them, you know, I share the Army acronym for its values, which is LDRSHIP. And I said, look, these I don't expect you to believe in these values because they not, may not be for you. But what I do expect you to do as a leader is whatever values you hold and you share with the organization you joined, it's your responsibility to live those values. And, you know, something else you said that, uh, you know, touched me is, is you, you were talking about why are millennials going elsewhere. And, and I would argue for any listener, if people are leaving your team, don't use the excuse or blame millennials. Uh, they're leaving because if they're on your team, um, there they might be other reasons, but a lot of times they're leaving because of you, the leader, and it's up to you to understand what makes them tick. Um, so back to this purpose concept. Yeah, uh, there, Mark, I want you to talk about the Jim Barish story because, you know, you've got great stories in every one of your chapters, but people re uh, will take away the stories and remember these. Um, but before you get into the Jim Barish, you, you write, if you don't anchor people to a story tied to a purpose, other motivators will guide them. Well, that's yeah. exactly what he was just talking about. But I think your Jim Barish story um, will make this clear to the listeners. So go ahead. Well, look, I mean, I... I um, I don't know how many people know the story of Jimboree. It's a children's clothing store, and, oh, I don't know, about a decade ago or so, um, they tapped a new CEO who came out of Dayton Hudson, which is basically Target. Um, and they tapped somebody, Gary White, uh, who's a great guy, uh, very intelligent, and this was a guy who really understood how to run an effective retail operation. The store's clean, plenty of product, you know, good good um, supply chain, you know, you're keeping the inventory in stock, you're not over inventory, you, know, you, you, you treat your salespeople really well, and you provide great customer service. And so uh, he moves over to Jim Bree. they need to help, they need to help, they need to refresh. And he basically puts in place the exact same approaches. Okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to look at operations, we're going to make sure we're looking at, you know, um, really efficient uh, product stocking, we're going to make sure we have great customer service. And what he realized very quickly was two things. Number one, everything I thought worked doesn't actually work here. Because number two, the purpose of Jimboree is very different from the purpose of Target. Right? Target, you're coming in, uh, you want to be surprised by some kind of nice new designy kinds of things that are pleasing to you and not expensive. But on the flip side, you want to make sure you get your paper towels and your you know, video game, whatever you're going to buy there. Um, at Jimboree, you know, you're dealing with mothers who maybe don't always know what they want. Uh, they're new mothers in many cases, so they're still struggling with figuring out their new job. And they've got newborns and toddlers they're dragging along. And their ability to focus depends on their ability to focus, which means that they need a, an environment where the kids are entertained, where um, a large part of the role of the salespeople is not efficient sales, but creating an environment that is congenial to families, mothers and children. Um, and, uh, you know, that was 
a very, very different purpose. They're both retail operations, obviously. They both have to be profitable, but it was a very different purpose than the purpose, the implicit purpose that he was trying to uh, achieve in his role as a CEO uh, or as a senior executive at, um, at Target. Uh, and he says, and it's a great story, I mean, he's in, well, I think one of the things we tried to do in our book was bring in real people. You know, we've all heard so many stories about Apple and Google, and these, you know, they've just become kind of mythical figures to us. I think it's hard to learn from these people. Um, when you talk about real people who are willing to be quoted in a book, telling their stories, it's not, you know, Joe Smith, the head of something or other, that's a fake character. It's a real person and who's willing to say, I had to park my ego. I had to listen. I had to learn. I had to realize that the kind of leader I need to be here is very different than the kind of leader that last organization needed from me. And that is very much facing down a sophistication challenge. It's realizing that my technical acumen is not going to get me there in this situation and that I have to be confident enough that I can be humble and admit I was wrong and then do things differently. And obviously, you know, engage the people who can teach me who are my followers. Can I learn from my followers? Yeah, and you, you said it again, essentially, what got you here won't get you there. Now, Mark, is this the same story where, I believe you said his name was Gary White, was uh, a VP suggested that he go into the break room and, and just ha- have conversations with his team, and, and that's where he learned? Is that the same um, author? If not, it's the same message. Well, so I, I mean, I'll tell you, that's probably one that comes up three or four different times. Um, okay. A lot of the work that I do, I mentioned, is I, you know, I, I know an organization relatively well, and they say, hey, look, we're going to hire a new general counsel. We're going to hire a new head of marketing. We're going to hire a new chief revenue officer. And uh, you know us, and you obviously understand how leadership works. Can you help this person with their onboarding and integration? And I say, absolutely. And then when I sit down with the person, they're raring to go. They're like, they just hired me. I got to prove myself. Let me come in here and change a bunch of stuff. The team is probably no good. I'm going to blow them out. Um, I need to show them that I'm a hero and I've got some great new idea. And I say, hold on, hold on, slow down, slow down, right? Um, There is nothing, assuming the company's not on fire or in free fall, right? I mean, if you come in and you find out, as I have with some of my clients, oh, look, my CFO appears to be incompetent, or even better, my CFO appears to be embezzling, right? This is something you should act quickly on. But in most cases, assuming we're not in free fall, what you need to do for your first three or four months is learn the business. Put aside any of your a priori ideas about how a business will work. Understand the culture. Understand what the market is and how that market is changing. Spend time talking to customers. Most important, learn the business through your team. Build strong peer relationships. Figure out how you're going to manage your boss effectively and then engage your team so you can assess them while you're assessing the business. And then at about three or four months, now you should be saying, I have enough information and I've earned trust and credibility that I can start making changes, and it's much more likely that those changes are going to take effect. And I don't mean just a quote-unquote listening tour. I hate that term. Oh, I'm going to go on a listening tour. No, no. You're going to go on a dialoguing tour. You're going to ask questions. You're going to challenge your own assumptions. You are going to listen, but you're going to listen in a way that builds relationships and leads you to now, come back to the original point, the ability to tell a better story. This is where we are today. 
this is where we need to go tomorrow, and here is a path that we can build together to get there. So Great stuff. Great stuff. Now, look, um, you know, he, just to recap again, he said, understand the market, the culture of the market, and learn through your team. Where I was going with that, Mark, and if you do remember, it can go ahead. This, there was some point where you, you talked about in the book where um, a woman who was a VP suggested that the CEO go and attend these afternoon meetings. And in those meetings, he met the people and he listened to them talk and they were just chatting amongst each other. And that's where he got to know them as people. And that's where he got to find out more of the story. And, you know, for me, I mean, I would, I would, and I think you talk about this as well in the book, uh, attributed to some a little bit of management by walking around MBWA or in what I would also call is you got to know the pulse of your organization. And the only way you know the pulse of the organization is by knowing what your people think. So um, if, if you can remember that example that I'm trying to get to, great. And if not, we'll move on. Um, no, I know, the, I know exactly the example. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's a very pointed one, which is can you – uh, go and just be a normal person. One of the problems with leaders is they think it's their job to talk a lot, right? Leaders tend to be fairly assertive. We get to executive roles because we're able to boil things down very quickly and very efficiently get to an answer. The problem with relationships is they are not efficient. How great would it be if I could say, Tom, we've just met, but I would like you to just start trusting me right now. Can we agree on that? No, you're going to say, well, hold on a minute. I don't know you yet. I don't understand what motivates you. I don't understand why you want to be my friend or have a relationship with me. So if leaders can spend time understanding how, quote unquote, the average people in the organization understand things, it greatly empowers them. However, there's a risk here, which is you can't just walk in and do that. If I'm the head of the unit and I come walking into the break room, guess what? Immediately all conversation stops. Yeah. Right. Because my presence there as unless they don't know who I am, uh, my presence there creates a different environment. So how can I create an environment? There's a professor at, uh, at Harvard named Michael Beer who talks about a process where you actually you don't go into the break room necessarily. What you do is you find a half a dozen of your highest potential future leaders who are a couple layers down from you in the organization, and you ask them to go into the break rooms, and you ask them to listen and talk and ask questions. And then they come back, and they report out to you or senior management, this is what we're hearing. Now, the only rule in this, and I'm very, very simplifying this model, but I think it's a brilliant model. Uh, Beer calls it honest conversations. Um, the only rule is I can't shoot the messenger. So if the uh, if the high potential comes back and says, look, the problem is everybody feels like they don't understand why we're making these changes. I don't get to say, well, you know, obviously they're dumb. Uh, we have to make these changes. The board insists we make these changes. That is, that's the, the, the path to you know, a really bad outcome. It's to listen and say, you know, I'd say the same thing with 360 feedback, right? Just because somebody is telling you something doesn't mean they're right. But they feel this way for a reason. So wouldn't it be good if you could understand why they feel that way, because that might allow you to be more effective. Great, great, great stuff. Now, look, uh, again, I want to recap some, one of the, some of the things he's talking about. 
Uh, let me just kind of re go uh, take a step back when he's talking about uh, the ability to go in that break room, if you will, and have that conversation, with beer, which beer calls is honest conversations. Um, he's referring to the CEO or, or higher level management. And, and if you're in the line manager position, I would suggest to you that this is a skill that you get to and you learn so that as you, you go up in the ranks, it becomes easier and better. Now, we're only got a few more minutes left, so I'm going to try to recap. And, and I only have the opportunity to ask Mark one more question. But let me continue to boil what he just said down. When he says that um, the leaders are able to boil things down better, um, I took a note there because in theory, we believe that we do that and we communicate better. But the thing that we really have to be able to do is listen better and listen with empathy. And so when we believe that we communicate better, this is where I would caution you, and Mark does this as well, and he talks about storytelling, and if you understand how to tell a story, and Mark, again, back to his literature PhD, he, he'll be able, we'll be able to finish up today's show with this. Um, there's something called the hero's journey, and there's, he's talk, he has this table um, in his book where it talks about the storytelling components that you always knew, and it's the literary story and the organizational story. So, Mark, um, this is the last question I get to ask you or request, and that is explain how, as a leader, do I use this storytelling to communicate purpose to my team better? And, and if we have time, if we have enough time, you can talk about how to recover and, and as you say, get your story mojo back. Good. I know we only have about two minutes left, so I'm going to actually leave you with something which is provocative very okay. much about. And I'm going to say what I need you to do, because you've talked about the hero's journey, uh, and that's referring to Joseph Campbell, of course, and then we talk about leaders. I think it's very, very important to differentiate leaders from heroes. So my favorite movies are the old spaghetti westerns, and the plot is always the same. Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, with the, the cool poncho and the long cigar, comes riding into town. There are a bunch of bad guys. He sorts things out and returns the town to a place of stability and prosperity. And then what does he always do? Rides off he into the rides sunset. off into the sunset, right? Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, never becomes the mayor of the town because leaders are different from heroes. Heroes solve problems Leaders create good organizations in good societies, and it's not just about them, right? Many leaders fail because they try to be heroes. They try to do it all themselves. They don't create capabilities in others. They don't understand what other people want and need, and they don't take the time, right? They think it's all about their capabilities. I'm the best guy with a six gun, rather than sitting down and bringing people together and saying, what are we trying to do here? What is our purpose? What will a good outcome look like? And then how can we do this together? And how can I help you to accomplish this? And that's your servant leadership. That's great, Mark. Exactly. Servant leadership. And thank you so much for being our guest today. And, and, uh, and as I said, we're going to invite you back. So if you're listening, please check back. I will, I'll have to coordinate and Mark will be on the schedule in March sometime. Uh, but I'm very much looking forward to that because, as I said in the beginning, I believe these stalls that he have align so much with you are going to experience as a leader and on your leadership journey. And uh, again, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. If you're following the social media post, I always put a link to the book there and a link to the uh, podcast. So check out either or both and good luck with your evolving leadership journey. Thank you very much. Have a great week.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.